Good morning, Bethany Church. Good to see you all today. Uh, we'll be continuing Gospel Foundations. I'll give you 10 bucks if you can guess which story we're doing. We have kind of a, a familiarity with the story of Jonah. Uh, if, you, if you saw the documentary put out by Veggie Tales a number of years ago, no historical inaccuracies at all in that. Uh, but we, we've heard this story since we were kids, right? We've heard the story of Jonah and feel relatively familiar, but we can miss some of the, the nuances of the book, so I want to point some of those out today. But Jonah presents us with a central question, a central question as we uh, look through the book and see how God and Jonah and Nineveh interact. And that question is this, what will we do when we are invited into expressing the extravagant mercy of God with him? How will we respond when God invites us into expressing his extravagant mercy, especially to those that we think don't deserve it? You also probably heard of Corey Ten Boom. Probably a lot of people have heard the story of Corey Ten Boom. Uh, many have probably read The Hiding Place. Uh, for those of you who are not familiar with her, Corey Ten Boom was a, a, a Dutch woman who lived in the time of World War II. Um, she was born in the late 1800s and passed away in 1983. And, and she and her sister Betsy and their family, they were, uh, they were one of the families that would hide Jews from the, uh, the evils of the German government, from the Nazi regime. And so she, they built a, a secret house or, or a secret room in their house. And eventually they were caught. And anybody who was caught hiding Jews in World War II were also taken into imprisonment and many of them put in concentration camps. So Corey Ten Boom was one of those people in 1944, in February 1944, who was brought to in a, in a prison camp called Ravensbrook. It was just for women. So she and her sister Betsy were in that prison camp together, and, um, and she recounts many of the details of being in that prison camp and the humiliation, and of course we know the evils of what happened in those camps. Many people sent to gas chambers and just treated uh, incredibly harshly. Uh, Betsy was actually a source of encouragement for Corey Ten Boom, um, who, who had actually a worse attitude. But Betsy eventually grew ill and died, uh, not from one of the gas chambers, but just from the, the harsh conditions, not having enough to eat. And so uh, eventually Corey Ten Boom was let out about 10 months later, 11 months later, in December 1944. And she was told later that she was actually accidentally let out because of a clerical error. And the, the women who were in her age group were all sent to the gas chamber just a few days later. So she then spent the rest of her life sharing the story, uh, not only of hiding the Jews and not only of su surviving the prison camp, but also of the forgiveness, the process of extending mercy to those people who held her captive and treated her so poorly. So there's a, a particular story that she shares. I just wanted to read that to you this morning. She's recounting three years after she got out of the prison camps and was sharing a message back in Germany again. She says this, It was a church in Munich where I was speaking in 1947 that I saw him. A balding, heavyset man in a gray overcoat, a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. Memories of the concentration camp came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister Betsy's frail form ahead of me, ribs sharp beneath the parchment of skin. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp. 
Now he was in front of me, hand thrust out, and he said, A fine message, Fräulein. How good it is to know, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrook in your, in your message. I was a guard there, he said. But since that time, he went on, I have, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well. Fräulein, again his hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there, and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? You see, we probably, most of us, can't relate to being in a concentration camp or the evils of Nazi Germany, but many in this room have experienced things done against you that would rival that. Many of us haven't. Many of us have to wrestle with our own levels of betrayal and harm done to us. But all of us, if we follow Christ for long enough, will see that we are faced with the question, what will I do when I'm invited to share God's extravagant mercy with someone? This is very much what's going on in Jonah. When we, when we come to uh, the book of Jonah, we see a man who's wrestling with that very same thing. I, I just want to walk through a little bit of the book real quick, and then we'll get to our passage. Um, but Jonah is, is called by God at the beginning of the book. Uh, uh, Jonah, go call out against the city of, of Nineveh, for their evil has come up against me. And of course, we know how the story goes. Jonah, Jonah flees in the opposite direction. So if, he went, if Nineveh was east from where he was, uh, Tarshish, where he was trying to go, was as far west as possible. If you, if you know a map of that time, which I'm certain most of you are totally familiar with the map of that time, you would see that Tarshish and Nineveh are literally polar opposites of what would be considered the known world of that time. And so Jonah goes onto this boat. It says that God hurled a storm, uh, hurled a, a storm on the sea. And it was the pagan sailors who recognized this is not a normal storm. We need to cry out to, they would say, our gods, right? It's Jonah who's the blind one. So he comes up. Finally, he says, it's my fault. Throw me overboard. They actually don't want to at first, but eventually they do. It says they hurled him into the sea. And whether this is a, a noble act or not uh, is uncertain. Jonah could have just been like, hey, if I get thrown into the sea and die, at least I don't have to go to Nineveh, right? So he, he still might be trying to escape at this point. But God's not going to let him off that easy, so he sends a great fish, right? Swallows him right up. And in the belly of the fish, Jonah finally breaks down. He, he surrenders to an extent to the plan of God. And at the end, he says, I will fulfill the vow that I have given. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And it says that the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited him up on the seashore. And lo and behold, we don't know if it was literally at the doorstep of Nineveh, but it was close enough because he was able to walk on up to the city and finally he starts to proclaim the message. And like a good prophet who wants the, the hearers to understand every detail, he gave them five words in the Hebrew. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. I mean, you can just sense it. He just wants them to get judgment, right? He does not want them to repent. And then somehow, again, subverting all ex expectations, this pagan nation totally repents immediately. They hear the word of the Lord. It goes deep. The king calls a fast. He even tells the cows to put on sackcloth and ashes. You can read it in there. And, and the Lord relents from his disaster. And this is where we pick up in our passage for today. We're going to read all of Jonah chapter 4, 11 verses, Jonah chapter 4. Jonah is not happy that God has relented from his disaster. 
So read with me Jonah chapter 4, 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? How's that working out for you, Jonah? Jonah went out of the city and he sat at the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity pity Nineveh? that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many cows. My favorite ending to a book of all time. There's three things that are revealed through Jonah that we're going to look at today. Three things revealed through the book of Jonah. Jonah reveals, one, the intensity of God's mercy. Two, the irony of our anger. And three, the invitation to God's mission. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for, uh, again, stories like this, prophets like Jonah, Lord, who, who we are not better than, who we identify with, we see our weaknesses in them, and we see our great need for our Savior. And God, I pray that you would help us as we look into Jonah, that you would reveal those areas of our own lives that we are withholding, uh, that those areas of our hearts that we don't quite want to be fully transformed. And I pray that you would uh, break in today, Lord, in, in situations that are very difficult in people's lives, things that they really wrestle through. And Lord, let us be a church that joins you in your mission to the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first, Jonah reveals the intensity of God's mercy. So just notice, verse, verse 1 of the whole book. And God said, Go call out to Nineveh, that great city, for their evil has come up against me. Now, it's too easy for us in our day to pass over that, uh, that verse. Um, okay, it's a city. It's probably a bad one, I guess. But let me just paint a picture of, of how awful Nineveh was. Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria dominated the world at this time. Uh, Assyria took many nations captive, including Egypt and Babylonia, and eventually Israel, and, and the list goes on and on. But they weren't just known for their conquest. Many nations did conquest. Even to this day, Assyria is known for their absolute brutality in the way that they handled these nations. They would do awful things. There's actually one king named Ashurbanipal, and in his, in his record of his kingship, he brags about how he would rip out the tongues of blasphemers, how he would crush people with statues, how he would cut people into pieces and, and share their flesh with animals. And if you think I'm being grotesque, I'm actually not even sharing the worst of what they would do to people. 
This is all normal stuff. They didn't want to just dominate a nation. They wanted to decimate their spirit. They wanted to take any hope away of becoming a nation again. And another thing they would do is, is disperse them. They would take them all from their land and scatter them all across the empire that they were uh, building for themselves. So this is actually what happens a number of years after Jonah prophesies to Nineveh. They take the ten tribes of Israel captive and scatter them. And these, to this day, are called the, the lost tribes of Israel, if you've heard that. That was Assyria that did that to Israel. This was not a, a nation that anybody would have wanted to go to, but specifically Jonah saw that there was an impending doom, potentially, for his own nation. Jonah was right about a couple things. Jonah was right that this people was extremely wicked. He was right that there was a danger to his own nation. And so he did not want the Lord to save them. And lo and behold, after he saved them, they went on to destroy Israel. So Jonah has some valid opinions, at least. In addition to all this, uh, Nineveh also worshipped a few different gods. A couple of those are... are, um, Asher and uh, Ishtar, those were gods known for their blessing in warfare. So they actually saw their actions of destroying, demolishing these nations as an act of worship to these gods. And also they worshipped a god called Dagon, who was depicted as a half man and half fish. Really interesting, in my opinion, that there's, there's a half man, half fish god that God decides to deliver Jonah up, vomited out of a fish, right? One could almost say that Yahweh... Uh, uh, delivered the message through the mouth of a giant fish, right? It's one of those times where God uh, uh, uses a particular means in order to show his superiority over their gods, but we're not going to go into that today. Uh, This is why I think that uh, VeggieTales is a really interesting uh, depiction, right? Because they were a violent people and they worshipped the fish god, and you remember in VeggieTales it says they slap the they slap each other with fishes all the time, right? I think that was their attempt to combine a couple of these cultural elements into one. Nineveh represented the worst of the worst. Nineveh itself was described by another prophet, by Nahum. Nahum and Jonah were the two prophets to Nineveh. He, he described them as a city full of bloodshed. So this is the capital city. Jonah talks about the violence that's in the hands of the people. And, and people like Herodotus and uh, Aristotle uh, recount the, the rule of a particular ruler who was corrupt and sinful and did despicable things. So it was known all throughout uh, the ancient world that Nineveh was an awful place. So Jonah, it, before we pass judgment on Jonah for what he did, let's find ourselves in him, right? Let's, let's recognize that he saw a real danger for his people. Let's recognize that, that it's not always the easiest to go to the worst of the worst. It's easy for us to imagine extending mercy to those people we already like. But those people who are truly evil, this is showing us the depth of God's mercy. Before, before we can truly enter into extending God's mercy to the people, though, we need to recognize the depth of God's mercy toward us. I think that's what some, many of us struggle with. Um, Alistair Begg says, The mercy of God is an all-embracing mercy, and it breaks down the barriers that man erects. And some people, I wonder, in this room, if you, if you might struggle seeing yourself as beyond the mercy of God in a certain area, or maybe in your entire life. I know I've, I've worked with uh, some students before, or other people, counseled people who have been in the military. I know we, we, we may not have a lot of military people in the room, but I'm sure there's, there's a few of us here. And, um, and I know that from their stories, 
that they will come back and have this deep guilt for things that they couldn't have even controlled. Or maybe it's things they actually did that were awful and, and have this guilt that does not go away with a quick repentance, right? Memories that don't go away quickly. Or maybe others of you who went through traumas in your life and you, and you feel perpetually guilty. There's a deep work of the Lord needed in our life that we, would, that we would embrace the depths of God's mercy that fully can reach us, not just reach other people, before we are able to extend that mercy to others. Second, Jonah reveals the irony of our anger. The irony of our anger. I love Jonah so much. I, as I've been studying this book, it's just such a fantastic book because it's actually written almost like a satire where everybody you think is going to do one thing does the other and all the evil people do what's right, right? There's just over and over ironies woven throughout the book. A few of them that I thought were really interesting. Uh, first, I, just, I was just observing. I just read through the book a few times and was just writing down repeated words that I saw. And I saw that there's these, these cycles of, of this word calls out. Okay, so this word calls out uh, happens all throughout the book. And so there's two parallel cycles of people calling out. First, it, they both start with God coming to Jonah saying, call out against uh, Nineveh. So the first cycle starts, God says, call out to Nineveh. Then it's actually the sailors who tell Jonah to call out for salvation. Then in the belly of the fish, Jonah calls out and he's saved. So it starts with God telling Jonah to call out, ends with Jonah being saved. The next cycle, God says, call out. Then Jonah finally calls out. Then the king says, call out, and Nineveh is saved. But Jonah's upset that the Ninevites were saved when in the first half of the book, the exact same thing happened to him. God said, call out. He didn't. Then he finally did and was saved. God said, call out to the Assyrians. They did it immediately, and they were saved, right? This irony of, of, uh, of Jonah's um, hypocrisy. Next, he says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned, right? He just wants the overturning part. He wants the overthrowing part. Well, the irony is that that word overturned actually also means turned around in repentance. It can mean either one. And so what Jonah wanted to be the overthrowing, the destruction, it actually happened, but it was actually the repenting and the turning around and facing of God. Then I love this. In chapter 4, I think my favorite part of the whole book is at the beginning of chapter 4, Jonah is exceedingly angry that God saved Nineveh. And then God just puts his hand in the ground. He gives Jonah a mercy, causes a plant to, to come up over his head, and Jonah is exceedingly happy. He's exceedingly angry at the mercy of God and yet exceedingly happy when that mercy is extended toward him. Right? The irony of, of his attitude. See, I think sometimes our tendency starts to go in the same direction where we become more concerned with the blessings God is giving us, with the common graces that we share, with the, the, the blessings we have in our salvation. But then when we are asked to extend mercy toward others, we can become hard-hearted sometimes when it's our enemies or maybe just indifferent, right? Less concerned about building God's kingdom and more concerned about building our kingdom. It's a danger we need to fight against as well. Um, I saw something else ironic in the news uh, or in, on, on a TV show um, this last week. Jason Sudeikis, he won, he's an actor, he won an award. And, and as he's getting up to share about how grateful he is that he wore, uh, won this award, he has the shirt on that says, my body, my choice, right? And so obviously um, uh, uniting with the pro-abortion, pro-choice, not, not shocking at all for somebody in Hollywood to, to do that. But what I thought was funny was that the first thing he does is he says, yeah, I just want to thank my mom. You've just been there for me. You know, it's just so ironic, right? The contradiction in, in, in the world these days. 
But I think equally or more at, uh, ironic than that is a believer who gets angry with God at his mercy. A believer who's angry with God because of extending mercy. The greatest irony in all of Jonah comes in chapter 4, verse 2. We read it. I'm going to read it again. He said, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I, why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now we see some of the natural irony in that, right? We see how Jonah, in, just in this book, has been shown mercy over and over, right? First, salvation from the fish. Next, the plant grows up over him, right? He's partaking in that mercy. But there's actually an even deeper irony here. And this, this is because he's quoting, or he is using the same terminology as Exodus 32 and 34. Exodus 32 and 34. This is where Moses has just come down from the mountain, and there's a golden calf all of a sudden, right? Aaron says, oh, I put in this metal, and this calf popped out, right? Anyways, ridiculous comment, but God wants to destroy Israel. He, he's about to wipe out the nation and start over with Moses, and this is that passage where Moses intercedes and says, no, Lord, don't do this. And then this is what it says in Exodus 32, 14, and the Lord relented from his disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Two chapters later, Moses is back up on the mountain and receiving new tablets, and he asks to see God pass before him. And so as God is passing before him, God himself reveals this part of his character for the first time in Scripture. Word for word, he says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Jonah wouldn't have even been there to complain about God's character toward the Assyrians if God hadn't displayed that same character toward the Israelites at Mount Sinai. The, the very complaint that Jonah has against him would have wiped him out before if God was not like that. Now, I, I recognize that it's not always as simple as just saying, you know, just, just forgive, just show mercy. There are some really real wounds and hurts that are represented in this room that many are still walking through. Maybe you are, are, are mourning a past marriage or maybe current marital problems, betrayals that are happening. Maybe somebody has literally physically harmed you. I mean, I, I can just imagine now, now that I have Sonnet, it's a different level for me of like, what would I do? What wrestle would be in my heart if somebody harmed her, right? It's not easy to forgive in that circumstance. Some of you experienced abuse, and maybe some of you are currently in abusive situations. And I just want to make a distinction real quick. Forgiving, showing mercy, showing extravagant mercy is not the same thing as staying in an abusive relationship, is staying in an abusive situation. You need to get out of the abusive situation if you're in it. Just as, as a sidebar, do whatever it takes. Use all your resources to get out of that situation. But there's a difference between setting healthy boundaries, getting into a good situation, and then holding bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart. I, there was a, a young guy that I counseled, and his older brother had, had sexually molested him as a child. And, and it, of course, just the trauma from that, you know, forms and shapes you as a child, right? Things that he didn't have control over. Um, his sexual identity was, was shaped by that. Um, the way that he related to people, and even physical problems that he started having. But the problem was, as we were trying to work through it, and we would come to the issue of forgiveness for his brother, he just said, I just can't do it. I can't forgive him. I can't actually release that bitterness that's in my heart. 
And what happened is not that it just affected that relationship with his brother. It affected every single one of his friendships around him. Other ones of his friends would come to me and say, he's the victim in everything. It, even when we're not talking about that, he has taken on the identity of the victim in everything. And, and also, these physical problems were still existing in his body because he could not release that anger, could not release that bitterness. You've heard that, that phrase that says, holding unforgiveness or bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die, right? It, and it, it never works that way, right? That's what we wish would happen. If I hold on to this bitterness, the person will get it someday. They may never get it. The only person, or the person that affects the most at least, is you. And so I just invite you today, whatever level of, of anguish you're working through. Maybe for some that you can't think of forgiveness issues, but it's always good to ask. Others, as soon as I start talking about it, you know what it is. And, and forgiveness is a process. It ha has to happen multiple times over and over. But as you do, as you release forgiveness toward that person and let go of the burden to, to punish, to make sure they get what's coming to them, to judge them, you're going to feel a, a significant weight and a, di a different level of connection in your relationship with Christ as well. Lastly, Jonah reveals the invitation to God's mission. Jonah reveals the invitation to God's mission. Our, our challenge, I think, is similar to Jonah's in some ways. Um, we live also in the midst of a culture that is rejecting God. Obviously, Jonah went to a different nation, but that nation was coming against the people of God, just as, in some ways, our nation is beginning more and more, or has been for a while, coming against the people of God as well. And I see that increasing, right? And we have, we have a choice. Are we going to join into the tribalism that we see happening all around us, right? You see, you see how culture treats each other when we, when we get into these, uh, the whole angry culture that is, that is built around politics, the whole angry culture that's built around religion, about whatever, right? About immigration, whatever issue you choose, there's a ton of anger, probably as much as has been since the Civil War, at least. And our temptation is to join in with those tribes, right? To more strongly identify with this party or that party, or even theologically, right? We draw all these lines. And I'm not saying that theology is not important. I, I truly believe that it is. But, but sometimes it's like we get our camps, even within the church, we do this. And, and God is, is asking us, how, how are we actually being salt in the world, right? Um, Anybody can love their friend. Anybody can love the person they respect. But Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. And you are the salt of the world. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? The way that salt would lose its saltiness is it would get mixed with other materials. Generally, salt doesn't just lose its components of being salt. It gets mixed in with other things. And that's what happens to us so many times. And, and look, certainly there are certain causes that are great and that we can join with uh, that are in line with God's heart. But if you find yourself identifying more strongly with this subsect of our culture rather than with the people of God and the mission that God has called us to, to bring the gospel to each and every person, to extend his mercy, then we're missing something significant. Ultimately, Jonah, he should have been able to look back at what Yahweh did and said, look at the mercy of God. I should be able to extend that same thing. And how much more for us should we be able to do that? When we look back at Christ, who is an even clearer depiction of that grace and mercy of God, we should be able to extend that same forgiveness. Christ is the ultimate type of Jonah. Christ, like the video said, was sent to a wicked people just like Jonah, but Christ went willingly. Christ and Jonah found themselves confronted with God's wrath. And Jonah had to kind of be prodded to be tossed into the, the wrathful storm. But Jesus 
chose to take on that wrath, chose to throw himself into that storm. Jonah went outside the city and watched for the wrath of God to come on it. Jesus went outside the city and took the wrath of God upon himself. Jesus, in every way, is the greater Jonah. And as we look to him, we're empowered to live with that same compassion. Seeing God's mission, he is self-sacrificial. In what ways are we being self-sacrificial to those around us, especially those we would consider our enemies? So, whether or not that's a personal issue you're dealing with, a personal forgiveness, or we as a church, how do we actually impact this culture? We have to have a different character and a different quality in the way that we have conversations and the way that we deal with tensions, right? On both sides, you see riots happening in the summer. You see a storming of the Capitol in January, right? There's upheaval all over the place. The world needs Christ and the world needs a pure church to bring him. Let me just bring resolution to this Corey Ten Boom story. So when we left it, she was, she was standing there with this man having his arm outstretched saying, I need to hear it from you. Would you forgive me? And she said, I stood there and I could not. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out. But to me, it seemed hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. For I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives us has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive yours. Still, I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart, but forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can, I can lift my hand, I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried, with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. We're going to be faced with decisions to make. And, and I think the tricky thing is, we can picture that most extreme version, but what are the smaller ones, the daily choices that you have to make? How to interact with somebody, how to extend the small forgiveness, how to overlook offenses, right? That has to start here among us, that we extend that love and mercy toward one another, and that we learn how to do that in the midst of a hostile culture, right? That they would see that there's something different about the way that we engage them, even when we disagree. So um, let's go ahead and stand. Worship team, you can come on up. And I just want to break down a couple ways that we can respond as we head back into worship. First, for those of you who may have that sense, that, that sense of guilt, that sense of shame, that doesn't go away no matter what you do. Something has happened. Something grips your heart where you can't fully step into the mercy and the love of God that he's extended to you. You can't fully feel that in your own life, that you need to receive uh, the confirmation of that today, that you would uh, potentially need prayer. So I encourage you to respond to that prompting of the Holy Spirit if you know that that's you. The other is that if you know bitterness is, is residing in your heart, or perhaps you've extended forgiveness, you've said it before, but you, you still feel the weight of that and you think that there's still something pulling at you, poisoning you from within, that you'd be able to extend that forgiveness as well. And uh, uh, people who are ready to, uh, to pray, to do ministry, would you go ahead and make your way to the, the sides of the sanctuary today so we have people available? 
Lastly is if you're wrestling with how to engage our culture, how to extend mercy, and it could, be, it could be mercy for things being done to you. It could just be knowing better how to engage in the midst of a hostile world, right? I, I feel confused in this many times myself. When do I speak? When do I not? But if you'd like God to just give you wisdom in that area today, that you would also come for prayer. So let's pray together, and then we'll head into our last song of worship. Father, we thank you for, uh, for your, your grace and mercy. We thank you that you are ready to empower, to uplift, that you are ready to teach us. Um, and Lord, God, right now I pray for just an, an outflow of your healing power, Lord, in, in people's lives. Lord, people who are dealing and wrestling still with deep hurts, with, with, uh, with traumas of the past, with wounds of the past. Um, Lord, people who are walking through relationships currently that continue to harm them. God, I pray that you would that you would release your healing work into their heart right now in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray that we would be shaped more and more into the image of Christ as we learn how to love like he did, self-sacrificially, not holding on to uh, uh, making sure that justice and judgment happens. Lord, I pray that you would uh, empower us as a church to know how to engage culture well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.